It's finally time. Ballots will start arriving in mailboxes across Oregon in the coming days and weeks. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with You Oregonian. Up next, state politics reporter Hillary Baroud, who's covering the unprecedented three-woman governor's race. We talked about Hillary's profiles of each candidate, what their final pitches are to voters, why Tina Kotek is trying to distance herself from Governor Kate Brown, and much more. Here's our conversation. Hillary Baroud, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Sure, good to be here. So Hillary, we're finally at the point where ballots are on the way by the time people are listening to this podcast or days away. And first off, I got to ask you, how are you holding up? You just dropped three massive profiles in a short amount of time on the on the three gubernatorial candidates. How, how are you doing? Oh, good. It's it's always a good feeling to have a big project like that wrapped up, even though our election coverage continues and we're very much in the thick of that. Yeah, this year we had profiles of Betsy Johnson, the unaffiliated candidate, a longtime former Democratic lawmaker, uh, come out at the end of September. Um, feels like forever ago. And then <laughs> we had a profile of Tina Kotek, the Democrat, who is um, the the former House Speaker in Oregon. And then finally, Christine Drazen, the Republican who is um, also the former House Minority Leader. So all three of them, uh, fairly powerful uh, and experienced lawmakers and, and political actors in Oregon. Yeah, I, I've got to ask you as a reporter, like what stood out to you or what did you learn during the course of your reporting on each of these women that you've covered for a long time and and know fairly well. Is there anything that jumped out to you during your reporting that surprised you? And maybe we'll start with the order you just went with. Start with Betsy. Is there something that jumped out to you in your reporting that really surprised you? Well, there were some new things that I learned about Betsy Johnson in really going back over her history in Oregon politics, which is quite long. She, even though she's running unaffiliated and talks a lot on the campaign trail about um, find, staking out a position that's not going to be dictated by the Democratic or the Republican Party, mm-hmm. she's been in, she's held office longer than the other two candidates, Tina Kotek and Christine Drazen. Betsy Johnson uh, first won election in 2000, and then she spent two decades in the Oregon legislature and the House and the Senate, always as a Democrat, um, although she was a more conservative Democrat in the sense that she voted with Republicans um, against some gun regulation bills over the years and environmental bills. Uh, but she's very she really supports um, abortion rights strongly and um, has said that support her support for LGBTQ um, or back when she was first uh, making the decision to be in the Democratic Party probably would have been characterized more as just gay rights um, Mm -hmm. or reasons she chose to leave the Republican Party in the late 90s. But as far as what surprised me about her, I had, of course, watched her and interacted with her for years in the legislature, covering the legislature. But I didn't know so much about her history in Oregon before that and just how much she has really had this passion for uh, getting a certain kind of 
redevelopment and economic development around the Scapoose Airport. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she and her husband have had various helicopter or aviation generally related businesses over the years. And so they're tied into the airport there. I should say Betsy Johnson is a multimillionaire, so she doesn't need the money from benefiting their business at this airport. But she just seems like she's really had a a singular focus on redevelopment around this airport. And so one of the things that um, had been covered years ago, but but um, I was seeing it for the first time when I dug back into the history was how sh- this guy who had wanted to um, do a certain business park development at the airport in the 90s, he said Betsy Johnson came to him and really pushed for him to um, oppose some other types of land use plans around the airport and she conditioned her support for this guy's plan on him (laughs) you know supporting what she wanted basically and then you could see her using those kinds of tactics over over the years but they didn't always work out for her i'd say the other thing that surprised me um betsy johnson has a a, kind of a well-known statement that she'll make about how her family they own over 100 acres at the headwaters of the Metolius River up in the Cascades. Yeah, this legendary river for its uh, crystal clear waters, right? Right, yeah. Really beloved by, even though the fishing there is extremely difficult (laughs) as far as actually (laughs) catching anything, people love that river for the fishing and just how beautiful it is. And she is just says over and over again, my family loved it so much that they gave away the headwaters. This wasn't really um, highlighted in my profile of her because we just ran out of space, but her family did not give away any actual land there. What they did was they donated to the Forest Service uh, an easement for the trail that anyone who has visited the headwaters of Metolius to get to this viewpoint. So the easement for the viewpoint and the trail were donated by the Johnson family. But uh, Betsy, who still owns their home and the 160 acres at the headwaters, if the Forest Service doesn't follow the rules that it committed to around that, then they can revoke that. Okay. So uh, long history, like you said, her family um, has been around for a long time in in, uh, Oregon's political power circle. Let's transition to Speaker Kotek, former Speaker Kotek, you know, a different sort of leader than Betsy Johnson. What stood out to you in the course of reporting the profile on uh, on Tina Kotek? Well, um, Tina Kotek is another lawmaker that I certainly knew um, and had interacted with a fair amount in my years of covering the legislature. She'd call reporters in it varied how frequently, but oftentimes mm-hmm. on Fridays or just any point in the week, she would have a regular weekly um, or semi-weekly catch up with reporters at some points during her tenure as speaker, uh, where we'd get to ask her pretty much any question and she would she would answer it. As far as new things that I learned about her, well, I did not know that Tina Kotek was a twin. <laughs> she has a twin brother who still lives in York, Pennsylvania. And her sister, um, her I believe it's her older sister, also lives out there in Pennsylvania, not too too far away. I think hearing that her parents were not um, particularly tied to any party was interesting. Um, mm-hmm. She said her dad didn't talk about party politics, even though her parents were very 
invested in voter participation. They worked at the polls out there as volunteers, she said. Uh, And then her mom would switch parties back and forth depending on who she wanted to vote for in the primaries that year. That was interesting. Um, Tita Kotek gets some criticism for how close she is with public employee unions. Certainly some of the big bills she's gotten passed in the legislature, those unions have supported, whether it's the Student Success Act to create a new tax. Mm -hmm. Um, Although she's far from the only lawmaker that had been working on that type of tax or wanted it to pass among Democrats. But the unions had certainly wanted that $1 billion a year in additional revenue that it's supposed to to raise for schools, the minimum wage increase that applies to all workers in Oregon had big union backing. But going back to her connections with the public employee unions, I didn't know that there was a personal aspect to that, which is that her wife um, had worked over the years quite a bit for uh, the unions, including SEIU, Hmm. doing some political organizing. And I also didn't realize that her wife had worked uh, on Kate Brown's, one of Kate Brown's campaigns for Secretary of State, Kate Brown being our Democratic governor right now, of course. So some new things that I learned about Kotech anyway. New nuggets, new nuggets. Um, and then let's go, transition to the the third candidate, obviously uh, Republican Christine Drazen, who I think probably uh, for a lot of Oregonians are learning more about Christine Drazen uh, than they knew certainly before this year. What did you learn uh, or surprised you during the course of reporting on uh, Christine Drazen? Well, with Christine Drazen, I think it was mainly learning more about her family background. As part of the process for all of these profiles, I was looking back at historical coverage of these people to the extent that that was available. Um, Going back over, at this point, I've heard them speak a lot, not just in the legislature, which is stuff that I could remember some, but I needed to go back in some cases to see the videos of them making speeches or um, revisit my notes or articles that I wrote about it at the Mm -hmm. time. And For Christine Drazen, um, I knew that she was really skilled uh, as a political leader and and operator in the legislature, and and she had helped her caucus pick up a seat in 2020 from Democrats. So I knew she was really smart, just like all three of these women are, uh, pretty savvy in politics. But I didn't know about her so much about her personal background. She talks about coming from Klamath Falls and mm-hmm. on the campaign trail. She's mentioned it again and again. And she's talked about the natural resource industry and how the um, the decline for a lot of workers in that industry, not necessarily for for the families that own timber mills or timberland or or large companies that do, but for the people who are doing the the milling jobs and stuff, how that had affected her family um, as she was growing up in the 70s and 80s in Klamath Falls. And just in, in learning a little bit more about the family's background, the level of financial stress that they were under was surprising and just was something that I did not know. Um, and her mom had MS, which added to that. And she had talked about how uh, there was even a, a situation where her mom was working at a daycare at night. Um, I'm not sure exactly doing what, but she took the kids with her and they would, she'd put them to sleep while she was working there and then wake them up very early in the morning. So she 
from that background, um, it was pretty impressive that she went to George Fox University, knew she would have to pay for it herself, and she really rose up pretty quickly, I think, in Oregon Republican politics in the 90s when they were controlling the legislature. Yeah. Well, there are three, like you said, very uh, uh, accomplished candidates, and it's uh, we'll obviously shared links in the episode notes to your three profiles. So that sets the stage now. We're kind of in the run-up here to the actual election. What are the final arguments that these women are making to voters, and is it pretty consistent to to what they've been making throughout the the past, you know, however many months since the primaries? Well, I think that they have sharpened the the messages. Of course, Betsy Johnson, her message uh, might be shifting a little bit because the polls just show her with not much of a path to win at this point. Um, she has benefited from just huge spending on her campaign, including by Phil Knight, the Nike co-founder and billionaire and typically Republican donor. He has given some money to Democrats over the years on occasion. Um, But he had recently switched to starting to give some money to Christine Drazen, the Republican. Um, So Betsy Johnson, that, that might reflect Betsy's kind of waning outlook. So she, she is still getting people to um, trying to appeal to people on, the idea that she will really tackle the homelessness crisis in Portland hmm. um, and that she wants to take more of a accountability focused approach. She hasn't had a ton of specifics on how she would do that, but besides citing uh, this one uh, converted jail to homeless shelter, um, a project that she's been really deeply engaged in in the Portland area. Christine Drazen, she's she's focusing on a couple of messages, the idea that she would bring change to Oregon, which has had Democrats in the governor's office since the 80s, the late 80s, and Democrats leading, controlling the legislature for over a decade now, I believe. So it's been complete Democratic control. And she's saying, hey, do you like what's going on now? If so, then vote for the Democrat. And if you want a new direction, pick me, Christine Drazen. And just to emphasize that with with inflation, even though, of course, state level politicians don't have a ton of control over a macroeconomic issue like that, she is talking about, well, are you um, tying that in with probably some of the issues that we've had with gun violence and homelessness. She's just asking people, are you better off now than you were four years ago? (laughs) Um, Tina Kotek, she is really sharpening her attacks on Governor Kate Brown. And that is something that is newer because Oregon Democrats are really loath to criticize each other. I'd see that in the legislature. They they weren't really going to dig deeply into why something went wrong, at least not publicly, you know, mm-hmm. if, if another Democrat was in charge. Tina Kotek is starting to really go after Kate Brown and, and try to give some specifics on even how she was disagreeing with the governor behind the scenes on certain things, like um, going to this private Oregon Community Foundation to run a homelessness uh, motel to shelter conversion program that they launched during the pandemic. She said the state government just couldn't get the money out fast enough. And Governor Brown was kind of, in her 
her staffers were kind of slow walking that. Hmm. So she's attacking Kate Brown and, and it's kind of, um, I don't want to say an easy target, but Kate Brown continues to, to have the lowest approval rating and, or yeah, the lowest yeah. approval rating in the nation, uh, which is not helping Kotech as she runs. Kotech does point to a lot of concrete actions that she took to address homelessness. And she has a pretty good argument that she has been working on affordable housing, whether it's pushing a changes to the zoning laws to allow denser development right. or just pushing for more money for shelters and all kinds of other homeless services for years. This isn't something that's new for her. And so she says she would just build on that and she actually has a track record. Yeah. Uh, some of those pieces of legislation put Oregon kind of ahead of the pack nationally. It was the first such legislation uh, at the state level uh, of any state, right? Yeah, I think that our um, ending single-family home zoning in the large cities, that that we were among the first, if not the first state in the nation to do that. We were the first state in the nation to pass statewide rent control, although that policy has ended up being kind of an interesting one politically for Democrats um, this cycle because built into these laws on rent control mm -hmm. is is an allowed annual um that's going to cap rent obviously and because inflation can be factored into that and we have high inflation people have seen the maximum amount of rent increase allowed be more than people would like so i've actually even seen in a legislative Add where I in the area where I live mm -hmm. um, in Clackamas County, there's a Republican who's attacking the Democrat on that um, that rent stabilization bill or law now by saying that, that it was it's kind of misleading, but he's characterizing it as a guaranteed increase for landlords. <laughs> Interesting. So the politics around that this year are interesting. For sure. Uh, let's go back to Betsy Johnson, though, because, I mean, when we talked back during the primary, which seems like a long time ago, um, when, you know, Nick Kristoff was... <laughs> was a candidate, which honestly feels like a lifetime ago. He's back at the New York Times. But regard right. regardless, you know, Betsy Johnson's presence in this race, there was kind of, you know, maybe a conventional wisdom in terms of how it would affect the Republican and, and Democratic candidates, but maybe we weren't quite sure. Do we know more now today, you know, talking on uh October 13th than we do at any other time about what likely voters are choosing Betsy Johnson over uh, the other candidates and who might be feeling the the hurt there of the of the two party candidates, if that makes sense. Yeah, we did actually the Oregonian commission polling in the race that came that came out a couple weeks ago now. Mm -hmm. I, it's, what is like time? We talked Hillary. about what is time? Um, but I believe it was based on the end of September, um, talking to li likely voters, and it did bring a little bit of clarity, at least for that point in time, that more Democrats than re Republicans were flocking to Betsy Johnson 
Flocking might be an overstatement. Flocking, um, yeah. Migrating <laughs> for the for the winter. Healing off. She was <laughs> healing off more Democrats than Republicans. So that just remains to be seen how that will shake out uh, on the election day results when they're tallied up. Um, Why do we think that is? Is that because Portland's, you know, this central character in the election and Tina is the Portland Democrat or is there other stuff going on here? Well, I'm not entirely sure. There is some conventional wisdom around Republicans um, tending to stick with their party more. I can say that in our polling, when people were asked about what was the most important, what's the most important issue for them um, in picking a governor, there was a significant um, amount of Republicans who told us that liberals or Democrats were a factor in their decision in the governor's race. So you can see kind of a, a pushback or desire just to to get a Republican to win. Um, so would they be willing to go over and support an unaffiliated candidate if that would undermine the chances of getting a Republican governor? It is a little surprising because Betsy Johnson has campaigned in a way that you would think is she's trying to appeal to Republicans. She has accused Tina Kotek of, well, she said that if Tina Kotek became governor, she would make the state woke and broke. So that's not the kind of messaging that, that you're using trying to necessarily appeal to Democrats. Um, I don't know, maybe moderate Democrats. And she has just generally used that kind of messaging on the campaign trail. To me, it did sound like she was trying to get Republicans and maybe has, has just not succeeded. No, that's, that's an interesting point. Let's let's talk about uh, Christine Drazen a bit. The Republican Party, both locally and nationally, obviously has, you know, this is not the same Republican Party uh, that Vic Atia uh, represented back in the late 80s when he was the governor of Oregon. Um, there are, you know, the, the Republican Senate candidate is a avowed uh, QAnon um, believer in the, uh, you know, debunked conspiracy theory. Um, obviously, the national level, we have the uh, Supreme Court uh, decision on Roe, which is reverberating across the country. Um, what has Christine Drazen said on the campaign trail about all of this stuff, about, you know, Joe Ray Perkins, the QAnon believer, uh, about Roe, and about just the you know, false claims that the uh, the president of the United States was not uh, duly elected by the people. What she have to say about all those things? One of her first points when she gets asked about the about election denialism and um, and Joe Ray Perkins QAnon stuff is she she will question the journalist or whoever is asking her about that. Why why are you asking me about this um, with Joey Perkins? It came up when she was actually doing an interview with a Southern Oregon, I believe it was a Medford TV station, and the um, the journalist in that case had just asked her whether she would support or she thought people should support Joe Ray Perkins, who is an avowed supporter of QAnon, and she did attend the January 6th rally at the U.S. Capitol that 
that became an attack on the Capitol. Um, there's no information that she was involved in it. But anyway, she's running for U.S. Senate against our current Democratic Senator Ron Wyden, and mm-hmm. she um, she's a supporter of a pretty out there conspiracy theory um, that Democrats and other powerful elites are part of a cabal of, of pedophiles and stuff. So Christine Drazen, at the end of that uh, question, basically to boil down to, she said, well, I wish all our Republican candidates well, and she was not going to disavow or completely distance herself from this QAnon believing Republican Senate candidate. And her campaign has stuck with that, um, that handling of that question, including when I wrote about her comments to the to the TV station. Um, mm-hmm. Her campaign sent a, a pretty similar comment back to me. And on the issue of Roe versus Wade and restricting abortion rights, people will probably know that Oregon has abortion rights um, embedded in our state law. Democrats passed that back in 2017. Abortion is legal at all points in pregnancy in Oregon. Um, although I've looked at the data and, you know, there aren't that many people having abortions, um, in the third trimester. Right. Which mirrors a national, national data too. Mm-hmm. So Christine Drazen says she is open about the fact that she's pro-life. She was endorsed by Oregon right to life in the primary. Um, she tweeted after the Supreme court struck down abortion rights at the federal level, that uh, life wins. Now, why she doesn't necessarily uh, receive all questions about her stance on abortion very well is that as long as Democrats control the Oregon legislature, she could not unilaterally as governor change the law. She can't. um, She said that she will follow the laws on the books so it's hard to see how she would unilaterally restrict abortion in Oregon. You'd have to have Republicans win enough seats to take control over both chambers of the legislature to pass a law, or you'd have to have voters pass some restrictions on abortion by initiative, mm-hmm. which they'd be extremely unlikely to do, considering they've voted against initiatives on that topic as recently as 2018. Um, she she did tell the Ben Bulletin editorial board a couple weeks ago that she would not try and do anything on abortion in her first term, but in her second term, she feels that there should be an, a discussion, that it shouldn't be something that can't even be discussed, whether there should be any restrictions on abortion in Oregon. And she specifically would like to have a discussion in her second term with people about potential restrictions in the third uh, or later in in pregnancy Hmm. and then um sorry did you address the uh election denialism has she commented on that (laughs) sorry this is a lot (laughs) it was a Um, lot yeah well uh, as far as election denialism i don't i don't believe christine drazen questions that biden won the 2020 election she told willamette week uh, back in the spring during the primary that yes, Biden won. Hmm. Um, from there, she doesn't, she's not eager to go into it a lot. It's just all of these subjects. If you are, if you are a Republican running in Oregon or you're a Republican that doesn't, um, subscribe to 
to some of these conspiracies that the election was stolen um, or QAnon, it can still be touchy to talk about that. And if you're worried about Republicans voting for you, I think is is what she's conscious of. So um, she pretty much left it there. Yes, Biden won in 2020. And uh, she has, she doesn't seem like she has distanced herself from Republicans who attended that rally. You know, she has accepted their support through her campaign if these are people in local Republican parties around the state and they're willing to go online and say, hey, vote Christine Drazen or put up signs for her or whatever. She's not Mm -hmm. saying, wait a minute, you're an election denier. I don't want your support. She is willing to welcome them into her fold, basically. I will say Christine Drazen had a really, and this is, this is one of the, um, things during covering her that in the legislature that was really interesting to see her as a leader. She led her whole caucus to vote to expel this Republican, Mike Neerman, who let, um, violent demonstrators into the Oregon Capitol. This was weeks before January 6th at the right. end of 2020 and lawmakers were holding a special session in Oregon on just extending, um, some wildfire relief and uh, help for tenants during the pandemic. And this lawmaker from outside of Salem, Mike Neerman, um, who was a Republican, actually went outside, uh, went out a door and let these people into the Capitol. They were violent. They clashed with police. And it wasn't clear what the Republicans in the House were going to do as lawmakers in the House were considering whether to um, boot this guy, which which was the first time that they w- ever did this. And Christine Drazen, this was another thing that I talked about in my profile. She talked extensively with, with the other Republicans in the House, and some of them didn't think it was clear cut, didn't come into it. Um, necessarily thinking that they should expel Mike Neerman, but at the end of the day, she had just focused on why that behavior was not okay, and they all, with the exception of Mike Neerman, voted to expel him. So I think as far as extremism and Christine Drazen, it's an interesting incident to look at because it doesn't seem that she personally comes from a place where she would uh, condone that kind of behavior. But when you're running as a Republican in 2022, how much can you be vocal about that and still win? Yeah, it's and that's, again, um, that's something that we're seeing play out a- across the country in all these, all these races uh, at the local state, federal level. We, we talked a little bit about Betsy Johnson and not really having concrete ideas about what her gubernatorial tenure would look like. Um, you mentioned Speaker Kotek has distanced herself from uh, Governor Brown. What would uh, Governor Kotek look like? Uh, what kind of policies would she enact that she didn't have the power to do as Speaker? Well, I think it would certainly depend on what the legislature brought to her, because with all these with all these candidates, uh, that's the thing to remember. They can't pass laws on their own. Um, I've seen Governor Brown really have a mixed record with getting things through the legislature that she would propose in her budgets. And that's just something that um, people always talk about. The budget, the, the budgets um, aren't set by the governor. 
I think that you would see Tina Kotek probably signing off on a lot of, um, to the extent that the legislature would have the power, they could lose, Democrats could lose some, some seats. Um, so I don't know whether they'd be able to raise taxes in, in upcoming sessions or not, for example, but to the extent that they can get through new progressive priorities, um, and priorities of the the state's public employee unions and trade unions and stuff, you'd probably see her supporting those. Um, she has said that she would focus on making Oregon government work better. And she says, you know, she recognizes people are frustrated that things aren't working, whether it's the jobless benefits that didn't go out um, for some people for months and yeah. months and months during the pandemic because the state, including lawmakers and governors, did not um, upgrade the computer system for that for years, uh, or whether it's the paid family leave program that we've reported is being delayed eight months at a cost of over $400 million of benefits that people are not going to be getting starting in January um, of this coming year. So she said she'd focus on getting some of those things in better shape, the agencies in better shape to work for Oregonians. She said that she'd focus early in her term on bringing more accountability to the spending of the money from that Student Success Act that raised the roughly $1 billion a year additional funding for schools and all this federal money for schools that the state hasn't um, spent a lot of that still. And one of the complaints that comes from people who are looking at some of this spending is that there's just not uh, very much accountability to actually produce results. Tina Kotek has said that she would push for districts to be more accountable on that. It just remains to be seen how that would really shake out. Um, she has said that she does not support bringing back the essential skills requirement for high school graduation, which is something that Democrats had had uh, gotten rid of for seven years already. Um, I believe was that 2021. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I feel like track. that was last year. Yeah, she says that she she agrees um, that that should go away. Basically, she doesn't think that having that requirement for students to show that they could do high school level math and reading and writing that that was really um, getting educators and administrators to improve teaching um, of those students. Uh, she does disagree with a proposal from the current state education department that that they would really cut back on math requirements because um, because otherwise Oregon's graduation requirement is just based on passing a certain amount of classes. She has said that um, students should at least pass an algebra class and maybe a ge geometry class which I guess is where she diverges from the report or the recommendations by current education officials. Uh, well, it's something to keep an eye on for sure. Um, lastly, uh, before I let you go, just the, this race we knew was going to be interesting just because of the dynamic of, of, you know, the three experienced lawmakers and Betsy Johnson's um, unaffiliated presence, probably not being something that we see going forward. I don't know, maybe we will. But the amount of money that has poured in, which you reported 
on um you know last week by the time people listen to this 47 million dollars at the time what do you make of that i mean just it's truly remarkable uh amount of money and you know only a, a small percentage of it from Phil Knight, I guess, when you look at it <laughs> through the $47 million lens. Sure, it could be at $50 million by the time this podcast comes out. It's a lot of money. I guess if you look at the fact that there are three people running, um, that was going to inevitably really push it up there. But we still have a month until the election and as individuals, these candidates, um, even if you had two of them, they'd be getting pretty darn close to the total amount that Kate Brown and the Republican Newt Bueller individually spent four years ago. Oregon has no campaign contribution limits. Of course, the issue that we have going on nationally is there's effectively no limit on how much money can be spent on elections um, through dark money groups. But Oregon politicians have Democrats and Republicans have, uh, and their special interests that support both of them have really pushed back for years and years against having campaign contribution limits in our state. We're one of just five in the nation that doesn't have limits. And, uh, this is what happens. It's a really popular issue with Oregonians, Oregon voters to pass limits. They have approved limits in the past and then state, courts have struck those down. Of course, I like to point out pretty often we have limits on the books from 2006 that voters approved and the courts had said that those were not enforceable for years. And then in 2020, the state Supreme Court said, actually, we're going to reverse that precedent. (laughs) These are, (laughs) they don't violate the state's free speech, uh, the state's constitutional right to free speech. So they're allowed. um, So Theoretically, it's possible that those could have been in effect this year, but the state secretary of state and the attorney general, both of whom are Democrats, have said that for some reasons that are secret and known only by them, um, that those limits are not enforceable. So, you know, they haven't, Democrats and Republicans have not passed limits when they could, but um, Tina Kotek's talking about it again this year, so we could potentially see um, lawmakers gear up to do that next year because there's a threat of a citizen initiative that people could see on the ballot in 2024. It's moving forward, and um, lawmakers would probably like to get ahead of that and write their own contribution limits and let their um, supporters weigh in on that rather than have something written by campaign finance advocates go to voters. Well, plus, this is happening because of this, obviously, this context you just laid out, but also it's just a product of there's a lot at stake. And both the Republicans and Democrats, and I guess I, I, I guess Betsy Johnson at one point obviously ran because she thought she could win, but they, <laughs> they, they, maybe maybe she can. We don't yeah. we don't know until the balance are actually cast. She's but still running I, ads. She could, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, this is just a product of like there's a lot at stake here. It is, yeah, and and there's a lot of spending by the national. Um, organizations, the Democratic Governors Association and the Republican Governors Association. There's a lot of spending by timber companies and timberland owners and um, heavy equipment dealers and um, 
public employee unions. I'm trying to go down the list here. Trade unions. These are all some of the biggest spenders in in the race. Um, it is not individual Oregonians, although there are tons of of just individuals um, chipping into campaigns because they're concerned about protecting abortion rights, or they are concerned about wanting to have someone who will really tackle homelessness. So it's true. There is a lot at stake this year. People should vote. Well, thank you so much for laying out all the, you know, what we need to know about all these candidates and for all of your work covering it and for talking exhaustively to me about it. I appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared links to all of Hillary's profiles, plus her coverage of campaign finances, in the episode notes. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. And tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.